0: This episode of the Noble Warrior Podcast is brought to you by C.K. Lynn Mindset Coaching for Entrepreneurs. Whatever mental blocks in your life you want to overcome as an entrepreneur, fears of failure, inability to take the actions you know there is to take, fear of success, three steps forward and four steps back, or even that thought of not feeling deserving after achieving all the success. Coaching is one of the most valuable tools you can have. It's an investment in yourself, and it can yield some of the highest returns. CK Lynn has the skills that will empower you to achieve the most accelerated results you've dreamed of. To help you get started, CK is offering podcast listeners a free strategy session with him—a thousand-dollar value. Visit talkwithck.com and schedule your free session today.
1: Today, I'm really excited to have my next guest with us, Ben Talbert. He is the former managing director, executive director for the uh, for the Esalen Institute, one of the founding place of the Human Potential Movement. And he and I we met at a speaker a speaker dinner at the Awakened Futures Conference that talks about the intersection of technology, meditation, and psychedelics. So you had a quite a fascinating story, Ben. Uh, you, you started as an entrepreneur, and then you. Became this uh, managing director, executive director for the Esslin Institute. Can you tell us a little bit about your your journey from entrepreneurship to where you were? Yeah, I'd
0: I'd be happy to. And CK, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. It's a it's a pleasure. Um, I'd like to just appreciate your your journey and creating this this forum for people to to learn and to be on you know, on their path, Mm. really, of having impact in the world in a meaningful way. Mm. I think that's uh, what really inspired me to have this conversation with you, was learning about what what it is that you do and and sharing a little bit of a a kindred journey here.
2: Mm.
0: Why don't I take you back a a little bit uh, in time? So if if we rewind to uh, 2009, I'm working in in Soma, San Francisco, with uh, two co-founders, one a dear friend from MIT, another from Oxford, and we're all uh, computer scientists. And we set out to build the next Google. And this was right after the financial crisis, and we're trying to and we raise money and we launch, and it becomes this big thing, and suddenly we're on this rocket ship ride. Uh, building a product called Scoopler and we had launched what was called the first real-time search engine and at Mm -hmm. the time Google would only uh, deliver you results that were updated once a day and we were doing it real-time and we were indexing a service that had just become really large and that was called Twitter We had Twitter and all these other real-time sources and so you could see what was happening right now images videos and links for any sort of breaking Breaking news, but it was reported by all of us. This was a novel idea. Mm. But if you play that out a uh, few months, what gets interesting is we realize that this is not uh, what we thought it would be. It's not going to be in the next Google-sized thing. And we go through some twists and turns, and we end up selling the company to Google, which was a fantastic outcome. And. So I find myself at Google and working on a team called the Engagement Team, and so it was myself and a handful of, of other product managers, and we had thirty PhD statisticians that we're working with, and together we're all working uh, to figure out how to draw people back into uh, into Google products, Google Chat or Hangouts or. Google social effort at the time was called Google Plus. Right? And so I am doing what I always thought would be my dream. I'm working at scale with tens of millions or hundreds of millions of users. I'm running all of these tests and I've got all this money in the bank and amazing, intelligent people surrounding me. And yet I was feeling empty inside. Right? I'd hit all the standard targets that one could could hit and I'm feeling empty. At that time there was really no one that I could turn to, to to have this conversation with but it felt like there was something more. And I was fortunate to begin dating a woman at that time uh, who was interested in a similar path. me and we began going to meditation retreats and I remember this and I think I think this relates to sort of our pre-conversation I we go up to a place uh, north of San Francisco called Spirit Rock and it's a Buddhist retreat center and they do day-long retreats and I remember uh, we did a, a day of qigong and meditation and so these guys are sitting up there and they, uh, on a little platform and they're explaining the, the meditation and I'm an engineer. And every time they talk about uh, energy or spirituality or something like this, my little bullshit meter goes to 11. Mm. right? But when we sit and we do the meditation or I do the little Qigong practice, what I can't deny to myself is that I feel something different. At mm. uh, moments there was a sense of peace that might emerge or just there's something that was right about that
2: mm.
0: that I wasn't getting from the other side of my life, from the adrenaline-driven experience of being inside of a Google or a fast-moving startup or money or going out at night and uh, bottle service and all this sort of stuff. Mm. I wasn't getting that from all the things that we've been told, this is what life is about. Mm. And yet it, my bullshit meter is still hitting 11. So it was around that time I uh, took a trip on on New Year's. We planned a, a seven-day retreat and we went down to this this uh, retreat center in Big Sur, which for those who haven't been down there, it's gorgeous. I mean, one of the most beautiful places in, in the world, I think. We were talking about it, right? Mm-hmm. And you've got the rugged coastline there with these incredible cliffs just you know, dropping off into the crashing waves. And uh, certain times of the year, you have whales traveling up and wow. up and down, dolphins jumping and wow. all this life, but then beautiful uh, hills and everything. So we go to this retreat for seven days and do a massage and meditation course. Which I recommend to anybody. Yeah. And I think it's as, as typical of uh, bright minds. Uh, not to say that I'm, I'm bright, but I certainly think a lot. So there's always sort of at least one talk track. At least at that time, there was one talk track going on in my mind at all times. Mm. Whether I was with someone or alone or whatever. Something's always going.
2: Mm. And
0: I remember we got into uh, you know third and the fourth day of the the retreat and just there was no cell reception there so the phone's away from me and everything sort of calms down and then I had this moment just standing there uh, locking the door to my room not doing anything profound not sitting and meditating and I lock the door and I remember turning I look out and there's this beautiful garden and it rolling grass that takes you down to the cliffs and then the waves and the setting sun and all of that mm. in that moment all my thoughts turn off
2: mm.
0: it was profound right this just this this quiet emerged for the first time and i remember hearing the sound of the the birds chirping and it was as someone took like the volume control and turned it way up and you hear the the bees buzzing, and then someone took the gain knob on one of those old TVs, turned it way up, and the colors get real bright. Mm. And I look down, and I can't figure out where my body ends and the world begins.
2: Mm.
0: What was interesting about that experience, along with this feeling of, of connection, is that also it just it felt true in a way like we know we have those moments where it just if it there's a feeling where you're like oh this is this is what this is really about Mm. and it doesn't need to be that sort of thing it could be cooking a meal with your friends it could be a a flow state when you're painting or drawing or I used to you know I'd have moments not quite like that but not too dissimilar riding a motorcycle Mm. you just get this feeling of being Superman
2: Mm.
0: flying through a canyon uh, but that one that that connection that sense of truth i went oh there's something here
2: and in that moment of
0: clarity i was able to reflect on the work that i was doing at google mm. and i realized that what i was doing with that team of phd statisticians is that we were studying the science of addiction mm. i knew from the work that i'd done exactly what color what image and what words would get you to click and make you think that it was your choice? Mm. So, in, the, in that moment, I had the words of one of my mentors come to me, and she, she used to say to me, Ben, don't push back, push forward. Mm-hmm. And so I thought about that and I went, I can't push back inside of, of this engine. All of the incentives of the organization are are designed to draw people back and make more dollars in that in that way, and I mean it's not it, and, I, and I there's so many dear friends I'll say at, at Google and they have amazing intent and strong ethics and yet the incentive structures at scale are are organized to for us to do this this sort of work and so I realized I had to leave. So I packed my bags and uh, left my contract halfway through and traveled uh, to Southeast Asia to learn to meditate and to do yoga and learn to breathe.
1: Mm. Now before you go into your own journey about the yoga, the breathing, the meditation, tell us a little bit more about that emptiness that you felt, the lack of color that you felt. Because I wanted to share with people who are listening to this who may not be aware of what that state feels like. You know, how do you share with someone who is not aware of awareness, right? It's actually a, quite a meta-meta difficult challenge. So since you lived through that experience, I'd love to hear a little bit more about what that mental chatter feels like, what that emptiness feels like.
0: Such a fantastic question. and and that's an entry point to me to to the deeper part of the discussion I do hope we get to if we rewind a little bit when I was 22 uh, fresh out of college with my engineering degree I went and got a job at Adobe you, you have to imagine that I had grown up wanting to be a graphic designer. If you're a graphic designer, especially in the 90s and early 2000s, you're using Adobe Photoshop and Illustrator, you're using their whole suite. And to walk into that building now as an employee, was this dream come true. Mm. Oh my God, here I am actually working on the software that I've always used as as a kid. Mm. And I had this incredible drive to achieve inside of me. It might also be interesting uh, to talk about where that that drive came from. Sure. But but to answer your point or your question, I would go home at night and I would have the felt experience of if steam were coming out of my ears. I felt mm-hmm. like I don't know Wiley Coyote or something like like you know that image of. Mm-hmm. Of a of Looney Tunes, the kid, where it's just literally, I'm overheating because I'm thinking so hard, I'm trying so hard. It began to affect my my health in weird ways. I couldn't sleep at night. Sometimes mind chatter was was going constantly. I was unable to uh, be alone. If I was alone, I was always texting to arrange something. Sometimes at night, I would have this compulsion. I just gotta go out, right, and I would go out and meet up with friends, we'd go to a bar and, and drink. I actually never drank that hard, but there was just this compulsion to do stuff uh, where I was feeling physically uncomfortable. When mm-hmm. I reflect on that, you can sort of tune in and, there, and a feeling, and this is, this is an important thing because I, I actually didn't understand this. For most of my life and it might be completely obvious for some of your your listeners and then some of them not not so much is is our our emotions are physical sensations in our body say that again emotions are physical sensations in the body Hmm. so if you are feeling anger and you tune in you can begin to become aware and ultimately describe exactly the set of physiological sensations in your body. So anger for me mm. is experienced as heat, mm. tension, and vibration in my forearms and hands.
2: Mm.
0: It's frequently accompanied by tension also in my throat mm. along with other other heat. Right? And, it's, and that's often, there's something that you need to say that you're not saying.
2: Mm-hmm. Right.
0: Fear, for me, I notice in my solar plexus.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: There's there's a tension that comes there that feels like there's a vice. I get another sensation It's not... Um, I don't have a good word for it, but when you feel like you're missing something or someone's going to get you, I, I have the sensation like I'm about to get punched in the side. Mm. This, now, this is after four or five years of intentionally working out this every day and sort of moment by moment mm. trying to to describe and become more articulate of what what is my felt experience of, of an emotion. Mm. The the reason this is this is important, right, is is because this is what drives us, emotion, right? Out of motion. That's you know, that's the Latin root. That's what moves us. And Pleasurable things we want more of, we move towards. Uh, you know, negative things we want less of, we move away. And that's literally—it's just the the body sensation.
1: Mm. Thanks for sharing that. Um, there's a quote that I really, really love, and this is attributed to Gandhi. It says our thoughts turn to our words, our words into our action, our actions become our habit, our habit becomes a result. Right, and then, yeah. and then it's like ultimately leading to your destiny. But I think there was a little bit of missing there. The missing link is emotions.
2: Mm-hmm. Our
1: thoughts actually leads our to our emotions. Then our emotions, the felt experience, then leads to the action that we take towards a positive sense of um, emotions or, or, a neg- or being away from the negative one. So um, part of my own journey in doing Vipassana, part of it is to... be more aware of the bodily sensations throughout the Vipassana meditation experience and in my eyes I'm an engineer by training as well so in my eyes my mental model is okay so in the beginning I have a very gross uh, resolution fidelity Mm -hmm. I have a rough idea (laughs) (laughs) the area of my head hurts but exactly where I can pinpoint exactly but through practice uh, the resolution increase. I'm still in the process of increasing that resolution. So do you have any suggestions for people who are Curious now based on your experience any books or a person or a practice or a seminar that you can point them to to really think about um, Increasing the resolution of bodily awareness
0: Yes, so I I, I let me answer that first uh-huh. and then I want to go back and provide a little bit of a loving challenge to both Gandhi and and yourself
1: sure that's yeah uh,
0: so in terms of, of practices there there are a few that I think would be really helpful so one is somatic experiencing so okay so Peter Peter Levines uh, work I, I deeply recommend he's been teaching at Esalen for I think over 40 years and uh, the the core of his work somatic experiencing is this notion that underneath what makes us human we were also animals so if you look at at prey animals a lot of times after they've been in a traumatic event or they're you know, tackled by a, a tiger or something like that they, they go into uh, fight flight or freeze right so they might freeze and they're in there's some biological theories about why that is. You sort of, you disconnect. So if you're being eaten, it's not uh, uh, hurtful. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, it, you know, they might let go of you, and some sometimes they they let go, and you're lying there, and then you get up and you run away. But what happens at the end is really interesting. They'll go in the corner and they'll they'll shake,
2: mm-hmm.
0: right? And and they basically move out all of that. Might call it energy or tension or whatever was there
2: mm-hmm.
0: so that they can uh, move on. Now, what we tend to do as humans is we shut that down. Mm-hmm. We want to look strong. Mm-hmm. Right? And I remember there's actually a great example of this. I was following a friend, uh, we were driving cars through a countryside, and I was behind him in, in my own car, and he went around a turn and lost control and hit the wall. Mm. And I Remember coming around the turn and his, his car was in the wall and the, the, the rear was up in the air. The, both wheels were up in the air. Wow. And it landed and I stop, And he gets out and he walks around the back of the car and he goes, oh my God. And then I watch his legs go all wobbly. And <laughs> he falls over. Mm. Right? And it's just his body shaking that energy out. Mm. A lot of times we'll shut that down. Mm. And so that energy gets, gets stuck in the body. And so Peter's work is all about how you sort of tune into those, those energy and, that, and those feelings and, and release it.
2: Mm-hmm. And it
0: actually helps to release a lot of traumatic experience without talking about it. Mm. So that practice helps develop awareness. Mm. Uh, there's another practice called Hakomi.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Don't ask me to spell that, but I'm sure we'll Google, it. Google can, yeah. can help us with that one. Uh, which is a, th- a therapy practice that mm. is based in part around that, mm. of developing that awareness. And the final point that I would make just around my own is I was working with an executive coach who was helping me to develop this, and I would say something like, oh, wow, I feel so frustrated, or I feel really sad about this thing, and she would say, well, where do you feel that in your body? And I would go, here. You know, somewhere between the top of my head and the tip of my toes. Mm. And so, through this process of tuning in and tuning in and tuning in, you can begin to get clear. And you go, well, what's the shape of it? Right? Are there, there are some boundaries? Mm. What's the uh, temperature? Is there a temperature? Mm. Is there a sense of movement? Is it a vibration? Is it a pulse? Is it a wave? Mm. Right? Uh, is it rough? Is it smooth? Mm. And and so you start noticing all the different qualities, and you're developing proprioception. Mm. I mean, there's you know scientific basis for this. You can develop internal awareness, and I this is getting sort of weird, but I can feel the shapes of internal you know, uh, skeleton parts of my skeleton. I can mm. I can actually feel things on the inside of my spine now, for mm. example, mm. and you're sort of like, well, why would you want to do that? But when you can notice that you're holding tension there and you can invite it to release mm. or you can tune in and say, well, you know, is there, and there's a strong connection between body and mind, is, is there, you know, a thought that goes along with that, mm. yeah, that process of inquiry is, becomes incredibly powerful
1: it's not weird at all this is great thank you yeah. for sharing that yeah yeah, yeah. i mean uh, ultimately here, here's here's the thing i, I say to people believe whatever you want to believe right and then ultimately if 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 that empowers you to yeah. to live the life that you love yeah hell yeah yeah right so that's totally great and then if there's scientific data to back it up even better
0: yeah right exactly yeah Exactly, and then and so I want to get back to the challenge. Yes, loving challenge. The loving challenge. Yes. So my mental model, mm-hmm. uh, which comes out of, we didn't get the, this part of my my journey, but in twenty fourteen I started an executive coaching firm called mm-hmm. Velocity Group,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and through Velocity we coach tons of CEOs and and C suite executives in Silicon Valley for. Uh, startups all the way through fortune 500s we do that uh, we started in silicon valley now we're in new york and london and and australia so my work with with founders around helping them to make meaningful change in their belief structures and develop skills and abilities to be more effective in in their work and give their gifts to the world helped me to uh, build some mental models around how we how we work how our minds work and what I would say is—is is my experience is that this is an engineering term, but it, it's sort of recursive, mm-hmm. right? It, things can c- sort of call themselves, so you can have a thought, like Gandhi says, and that can generate an emotion, mm-hmm. but you can also have an emotion generate a thought. Yes. So it can go either way. Yes. And then that's the interesting thing. And then you know one. One thought could generate an emotion, which generates a different thought, which generates a different emotion. Hmm. And all of these are filtered through the structure of your belief system.
1: Mm-hmm. If,
0: if you wanted, we could go into my functional model of, let's of do it. how that Yeah, let's that go works. there. Yeah, let's go. Okay. <clears throat> so the way that I think about this, and again, I, you know, I say this, this is at a functional level, right? So my basic view is that all models are wrong. Mm-hmm. Some models are useful, mm-hmm. so let's consider this sort of a useful model that we can agree is wrong.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's not about the absolute accuracy of the model; it's about the effectiveness, yeah, how it lends to right. a particular desired outcome. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. please continue.
0: So the way that that I I tend to to operate in the work that I do is that we take in raw data. So mm-hmm. raw data. It might be uh, through the eye, through the the ear, you know, through, the, through the sense of taste or touch or other things, right, uh, and then that data goes through the structure of our beliefs, right and so it goes through that filter and, it, and it's colored, and then that data comes out the other side, and other things get get generated mm-hmm. It might generate a thought, it might generate an emotion, right. Uh, it might generate a, a course of action, right? Mm-hmm. But e- each of the things that get, gets generated in turn becomes data that goes back in. Mm-hmm. And so one, one little input, and I mean you can, you a can, uh, good example is you're walking along, um, you, you are, you're on the street and you look over and there's a bouquet of flowers and it's the favorite flowers of your ex-girlfriend. Right, so raw data comes in and some okay. uh, pink roses. Mm-hmm. And then that goes through through a set of beliefs right, around what those roses mean and then it generates, in this case, a memory. And then that becomes data that comes in and then you, it filters through those beliefs and then on and on and on and you start to chain these things. And so we're rapid fire running this process over and over and over uh, through the internet entirety of our lives and so that that to me is this the structure that's that's going on Mm -hmm. uh, at every moment Mm -hmm. and then what what gets interesting is how you start to unpack that and where you want to make shifts right so do you want to make a shift around what those roses mean or do you want to make a shift around maybe how you feel about your your ex-girlfriend oh you know i never got her enough roses right i'm I'm, you know i'm a failure or now i did everything that i could and Right, you know, or we have a great relationship, or had a great relationship. So you can start to work on on those individual beliefs mm. and start to change the emotions that you hold around around them. And it begins with the awareness practice.
1: So do you? So how how far upstream do you go as an entry point when you talk to your client? As an example, you know, in the in the case of seeing a rose, do you immediately go to how does the rose make you feel? do you go to the interpretation, the stories, and then go as far, fo- you know, follow the thread as upstream as possible?
0: I haven't had a conversation with a client that begins with the rows. Usually our our, our work, we structure it around specific goals, mm-hmm. very results-oriented, mm-hmm. and in a business context, that, that tends to make it easy because there's a lot of pressure to perform, sure. and so that's a strong clarifying function sure so it might begin with we need to hit this goal yeah right so that's sort of the overarching context is we've got to hit you know these numbers or metrics or whatever in order to move the organization forward
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh, but then there'll be some presenting problem like my uh, VP of sales is fucking up sure am I allowed to say that of course <laughs>
1: sorry go for it
0: and That will be the entry point. So there's usually a presenting problem There's something that they want to have happen and Mm -hmm. the reality of their situation is different Mm. and they're experiencing some suffering Mm. And that becomes the entry point in the inquiry Mm. into both their own experience and relationship with it and then how do they make shifts in their beliefs or c- capabilities or behaviors in order to get more of what they they want. Mm.
1: Viktor Frankl wrote a beautiful book, Man's Search for Meaning. And one of the most um, memorable uh, sentences that I got out of the book is, uh, between stimulus and response, there's a space. And in that space lies our growth and freedom, right?
0: Beautiful quote.
1: Yeah beautiful so if I'm hearing you um, as a way you coach your clients is in bringing awareness during that space like hey why do you say that your sale is fucking up like where is that coming from how do you feel and then you start to kind of unpack that space is that an accurate way to um, describe or give it back to you what I hear
0: that is that is part of it hmm I think the other part is is what is the under sort of drawing the waterline down mm-hmm. on the subconscious, mm-hmm. revealing more of the subconscious set of beliefs mm-hmm. to to discover why they're choosing to to experience their VP in that way. Mm-hmm. Right? so uh, this is the difference between fact and story. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if that's a familiar concept, right? But a lot of times what we relate as a fact,
2: mm-hmm.
0: our VP is fucking up, is a story, mm-hmm. right? That's a, that's a narrative. Mm-hmm. He may or may not, or she, may or may not agree,
2: mm-hmm.
0: right? Uh, now, facts are things that, I, that a camera can record.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So, the VP missed his numbers.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: That would be a fact.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: right or uh, i feel angry that's a fact you can't there's nothing debatable about facts
2: mm-hmm.
0: right um, now but just to, to simplify this example so the the vp may actually have screwed up right there was a big deal and he didn't wake up right and uh, he missed the deal and lost it and that's why the numbers were missed mm. or it could be market conditions you don't know right mm-hmm. so what we're doing is we're constructing a narrative in real time all the time around these facts mm-hmm. and so it's it's starting to unpack those and then shifting to uh, more empowering beliefs mm. that generate more empowering narratives
1: right? can you unpack the word empowering from your point of view
0: uh, you get more of what you want and less of what you don't want Ah, gotcha thank you for that yeah cool. and and you tend to experience more happy and you know, positive emotions than negative emotions
1: cool so one of the uh, impetus that I like to do to, with this particular podcast is not, it's is to also give people not just a intellectual understanding in theoretical terms but also in a mental model that actually serves them right but also something tactical so, yeah. that I can, so they can actually try it on for themselves. Hey, I was inspired by Ben's story. Yeah. Let me try on some of his tactical yeah. disciplines. Great. So how do you, as a way to, for yourself, um, help increase... What was the word you used? The probabilistic... No, you didn't use that word. That was my word. The effectiveness of your... Beliefs. Beliefs, right.
0: Well, so one way that you can investigate them... Is a, this is another Esalen faculty, but Byron Katie's work. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's, a, she has a series of questions, and I, I won't elaborate them here. But the let's let's say you know you have this example, VP is screwing up. Mm-hmm. First question is, uh, is it true? Mm-hmm. And like, is it, is it absolutely factually true? And that part's debatable. Now, a lot of people, uh, when they have sort of a fixed mindset, they're like, yeah, they're totally fucking up. But here's the interesting question. Is how, uh, how is it that the opposite of your story might be as true or truer? So in this case, you, you would put, to, you know, put together the mere opposite of that.
2: Hmm. The
0: VP is doing a great job. And then try to come up with evidence, a few different points of evidence, that they are doing a great job.
2: Mm.
0: Now, what I find is if you're looking at something objectively, that's an, and then you can see both sides of the coin. We, and we know this. How do we know this? Uh, frequently, when we're when we're giving friends advice, right, we're not as invested in in their outcome. We can see there's one side and there's another. Or if you think about a couple, oh, I can see. what her perspective and I can see his perspective but suddenly when we're one of the two parties involved right there's only one perspective that's right and it's our perspective right so if you're trying to be right about Mm -hmm. something chances are this is this is a good uh, moment for you to investigate the beliefs that you're holding Mm. and so if you're able to come up with that alternate narrative even if you ultimately still hold your point of view There's more trust embedded in that because you're able to see both perspectives Mm -hmm. and start to view things more objectively.
1: Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Thank you. Any other disciplines as a way to train yourself, train your brain to live in an empowering context? Because ultimately the outcome is people, as you said, I love that definition. You have more of what you want yeah right and that includes the the things that you want the the success that you want and as well as the internal emotions the yeah. joy the bliss right everything yeah. that people want more of yeah so how do you train yourself to live in that empowering context
0: well i think there's two uh there's sort of two parts of this in my view there's sort of absolute truth and relative truth sure All Right. so in the absolute truth sense, this this to me is sort of the spiritual work.
2: Hmm.
1: Is uh, what spiri- not- spirituality for you? Just define that for a little bit, so that way people can. <laughs> We're going meta meta. Yes,
0: <laughs> uh, that's good. I I've never actually tried to uh, define spirituality uh, for myself. I think it's it, it's the sense that there there's something more, whether you call it. I, you know consciousness or the universe or God or, or whatever, but that there's, there's something more here than the, the materialist perspective. Got it, Thank you.
1: Um,
0: and I, I strongly separate that from religion. yeah. Right? You know, religion has a specific mythology and rituals and, right. uh, and structure around
1: it, you know, dogma. I love Bruce Lee's quote. Yeah, it says religions a lot like the fingers pointed at the moon. Look at the moon, don't look at the finger. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. Yeah. I like that one. So that's that's my definition. And when we talk about absolute truth, my own pursuit is is to to see through uh, the delusions of my own psychology mm-hmm. and realize that it's. It, in the Buddhist tradition, it's the grasping for things or aversion to things mm-hmm. that is the cause of, of suffering.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So part of the work that I'm doing is supporting people and coming into rapport with reality. Mm-hmm. Right, We're seeing things as they are, accepting them as they are, mm-hmm. no more and no less. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean it can't come with decisive action. Mm-hmm doesn't mean that we can't work super hard and be exhausted.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: We don't need to go off and be a monk up on, on the hill. But, so that's the absolute reality side of things is to is to let go of the grasping aversion. You can still have strong intention, but you let go of that. So that's, that's spiritual work. And along the way, there's still plenty of psychological cleanup of holding beliefs that allow you to to experience more positive states or more positive emotions than the negative ones so if we get back to it at the end of the day mm. it's and that's where we start a conversation it's our emotions that are are truly driving us
2: mm.
0: if you look at I like to, to a concrete example the belief structure I've seen for the majority of uh, entrepreneurs is, is a uh, a f- a fear driven structure hmm. and a very complex tra- chain of beliefs that essentially says, like, if I IPO and have enough wealth and enough users, then I will be worthy of love.
1: Mm-hmm. But that's not where you start, right? You don't tell them the answer.
0: I mean, you can tell them the answer. I mean,
1: right. I, Do you? I mean, I'm <laughs> curious.
0: Sure, but it does. It, yeah, that's the thing: is until you know it, mm. right? Until you deeply know it in your bones, mm. that's it, it. Doesn't it? Doesn't make a difference, mm. right? True. It, 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 learning these things is like riding a bike. If mm. you've read all about riding a bike, mm-hmm. but you get on the bike and you and you you fall over,
2: mm.
0: then you don't know how to ride a bike. Yeah, and and so the way that relates practically here is. Until your decision making,
2: mm-hmm. moment
0: by moment by moment, looks like you riding the bike, you operating from this this place of not having, uh, grasping or aversion, mm-hmm. to your current experience. Mm-hmm. You have you don't truly know it. You may understand it, but you don't know it. Mm-hmm. And so th- this is why I think there's there's some very simple you know, absolute truths, and it gets very complex on the psychological side with all of these beliefs, because they show up in so many different contexts. Your mm-hmm. family, your relationship, your uh, views on your your body, uh, you know, finances,
2: mm-hmm.
0: what types of uh, activities you enjoy doing, right? Mm-hmm. And all, all, you know, it's a small set of truths showing up in very con- different contexts, and then how do you actually shift those beliefs to be more aligned with, with the deeper truth.
1: This actually may be a great segue yeah. to so Confucius, he said self mastery, family, country, world. Right. So we had talked primarily a lot about the self mastery aspect of it. Yeah. Right? During the day to day, you know, between stimulus and response, how do you respond, train yourself, and so on yeah. and so forth. As someone who were who was responsible, the executive director for the Esalen Institute, um, you you were responsible for your team, for your organization. You know, build companies before. Someone who is all who were responsible to bring forth um, the mission. How do you navigate the the zooming of in and out of holding your own value um, and cultivate that culture? And then making that broader impact that you wanted to make, you know, in the conscientious space. Let me see if I can ask the question in a a better way. Yeah. (laughs) Um, It's challenging enough to manage your own, you know, stimulus and response, and in that space you have infinite choices. Yeah. Now you're now responsible for making that decision for your family, for organizations i would say it's perhaps infinitely more difficult because now you got to think about a lot of other ramifications so as someone who headed the Esalon Institute right what well, how did you navigate that space
0: good question so the <laughs> this the spiritual side of me wants to to ask you is it really more difficult or is that a construction of the mind right yeah it, right so at one level you can look at that as another belief mm. and sometimes we tell ourselves this this is hard
2: mm.
0: this is difficult or this is complicated
2: mm.
0: Some, sometimes it is right? Some, but it's not not always There's a couple of simple models that that I used and I mean the big caveat here is that you know I believe we're always learning and there's a lot of decisions that I made where I learned a lot right I don't think I always got it right definitely not
1: welcome to being human
0: right yes <laughs> welcome to being human. Uh, but one is, as, as a leader, I believe our responsibility is to not just model what we want to see in the world, but embody it. So it does start with doing your own inner work, totally agree with that, and that what my practice looked like uh, while I was at Esalen was an hour a day of meditation in the morning, um, exercise daily and usually a half hour an hour of meditation at at night and part of this is context for six the first six months of my role we were in crisis because we'd had experienced massive landslides that cut us off and effectively turned big sur into a an island cut off from the rest of the world and we were i was working to stabilize us financially and organizationally and all all this stuff. Uh, So I I needed that to just get myself through. But one model that I I really like comes out of uh, the work of Fred Kaufman. So he's another great executive coach and I love his book, Conscious Business, where he very uh, pragmatically applies a lot of these principles around consciousness to very specific business conversations, this would be a general recommendation. Hmm. You know, it's like here's how to have a hard conversation and make agreements, and here's what to do when those agreements get broken, things like that. And, and so one of one of the uh, guiding principles for me was what he called uh, circles of compassion. Hmm. And the the way that a circle of compassion works is is, is essentially we tend to myopically focus on the very specific instance of whatever the issue is that's presenting and he's saying hey take take your compassion around what's going on there and start to expand it you know if it's between you and a particular person think about the impact to the team or to the organization or to the the customers or to the mission or the world at, at large and so you you know sort of zoom in zoom out through these circles of, a, of compassion to try to navigate and, and it's interesting because as you start to zoom out oftentimes the the what feels like the right answer what is the most compassionate thing to do uh, becomes more and more clear
2: Hmm.
0: so a, a good example might be you have uh a staff member that's not performing you know like Joe's not performing sure. right. now obviously you start with Joe and you know, can you have a conversation about it do they need support how can we support Joe in doing his best work Right. Uh, but let's say you know because not everyone's open to that you, you run in a circumstance where it's like oh actually you know Joe is not a fit for this role so one, you can be compassionate there. If that if that is the conclusion that that you reach, we're not setting Joe up for success. But a lot of people are like, oh, well, we can't let go of Joe because he's got a family, right? And that's not, you know, he needs to earn money and support his family and all this. Well, what if Joe is a, like a surgeon? And he's bad. And people are getting hurt, right? Mm-hmm. Like customers are getting hurt. So you've now expanded the circle a little bit right then then it it shifts you know oh well actually well we're not supporting joe and doing the best work of his life and people are getting hurt by it maybe it's less dramatic than that he's a sales guy well he's missing his numbers and that's bringing the team down they're not able to thrive because he's not doing his his work and that team going down means that now the company is missing their numbers now the company can't Deliver on their mission and maybe they have a great mission like Esalen, which is to Advance human potential in the world Mm. and so when you start to expand out the circles of compassion The answer can become more clear Mm. Right now what I'm always interested in just to go back to our theoretical Joe is how can I support Joe in giving his greatest gift? Mm. so the conversation is really around that it you know is Why is he not performing? Are there other factors or other things that we can sort of shore up or get him the support to do that? Or is there another role that puts him into his zone of... Is there another role that puts Joe into his zone of genius, Mm. right? So that he can do the best work of his life. Mm. And um, sometimes, though, that may not be inside of the organization, Mm. So one of the things that I learned sort of a beautiful way, I was, I've always been interested in growing companies. Right? That's what I do. When I stepped into Esalen, we were in crisis, losing a million dollars a month with no ETA on when we could reopen. Our mm. fate was not in our own hands because we we're you know, waiting for government organizations to rebuild roads that are in active landslide zones. So we had to make some hard decisions, and one of the first things that I had to do was lay people off. And this was terrifying for me, but much harder for for them. Certainly, one of the fears that would come up in me at night and keep me up is what if, you know, what if that person can't find a job or make a living or things like that, and. I can't tell you how many times individuals would call back we had a a team that tracked everyone that we we had to let go to provide them support and they would give me so much feedback around so and so sort of had been afraid to leave Mm. they were sort of ready for the next step of the journey and they'd been afraid and I remember one woman I, I spoke to within a week she found a house in the town that she always wanted to live in and then got her dream job and here i'd been holding the story that that i was harming her and and in fact it empowered her to thrive Mm. another good example of how the opposite of your story might be as true or truer
1: beautiful i know that we don't have a couple minutes left so i wanted to you know one of the things that really inspired me during your talk, during our dinner series, was the idea of moving from human potential movement mm-hmm. to the collective potential movement. So maybe we can give people a little sneak peek of the next conversation. So what do you mean by the collective potential movement?
0: Thank you, CK. Yeah. So this uh, thesis sort of born out of the, the history of Esalen and. Uh, my work during my time as Executive Director, in the 1960s, Eslin birthed the Human Potential Movement. It was this I- idea that we are individually but collectively much more than we think we are. That we're only limited by these false beliefs that we, we hold about ourselves and, and the world. And those beliefs get instilled in us sometimes by our family or by education or religion or our nation, things like that, about what's possible, and that we need to break through those false beliefs to realize our full potential as humans. One of my favorite examples of this is Roger Bannister, right, who broke the four-minute mile. And you, you, you're nodding at me. You know this, this story, but I'll, I'll briefly describe it just to illustrate the point. There, there was a time when it was understood that uh, running a mile in four minutes was the limit of what human physiology could do. That if you ran faster than four minutes, you would die. And Roger Bannister, a longtime runner, was getting close to this mark, and he said, hey, I'm going to run the four-minute mile. And there was press there, and... There were doctors there, right? I mean, they were ready that when he r- broke this record that he would just collapse and they would have to resuscitate him and what is it, put on the, the electrodes on him and restart his heart and all this. And, you know, amazing story, he breaks the four-minute mile and he doesn't die mm-hmm. or collapse. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And that's fascinating. But to me, what was more fascinating is that in the months that followed... You know, 10 and 20 and dozens and hundreds and now thousands of people have all broken the four-minute mile
2: mm-hmm.
0: and what happened did he unlock uh, some hidden ability that w- no I mean it's it's all within all of us and what was what holding us back was that narrative that limiting belief that we couldn't run faster than than four minutes mm-hmm. so built on on this idea of breaking through the limiting beliefs Esalen tried to create a safe container where the pioneers who were working way beyond the limits of what was thought to be possible and at those times that was in a sense being a bridge for a lot of the traditions from the east around things like yoga and meditation but also in the west bringing in new forms of psychology and neuroscience or body work all these different things and creating a safe space for these pioneers come together and actually explore at these frontiers of, of human potential. Now if you look at the last 50 years, the majority of that attention has been focused on the individual and that's one of the things I'm passionate about and you're passionate about and we're the product of this in ways that we know and often don't know about. However, when you look at the challenges that we're now facing and the opportunity, Mm. I should say mm. because I'm incredibly optimistic about humanity. I think we need to tilt the focus from the individual into the collective
2: mm. and
0: what what I believe will be called the collective potential movement. And so now part of the work that I'm doing is gathering those pioneers that are on these frontiers of collective potential that are doing work in groups in organizations in communities or hopefully one-day nations that are operating be, beyond the limits of what we we think is possible mm. starting to bring those to those folks together to cross-pollinate ideas mm. and to support each other and, and bringing us into a future that at an individual level allows us to give our greatest gifts to mm-hmm. the world and on a collective level allows humanity to to thrive uh, in the universe
1: Yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you. So I'm one of them. I'm inspired. Uh, I want to contribute. I want to be a part of this. Is there um, a community you're building? Is there a website you're sending people to? Are you publishing a book? Creating a seminar? What are you doing? Yes. All of that.
0: Uh, So right now, for me, I'm in discovery Mm. around this. uh, The collective potential movement specifically. Mm. Uh, If people want to... If uh, become involved, they can reach out to me uh, through my business email. That's Ben at gainvelocity.com. Gainvelocity.com is where we do our coaching. If you're a pioneer and you want you want uh, coaching and what I sort of jokingly call Jedi training and mm. uh, meet some other Jedi, uh, you can reach out to me there as well. Mm. And um, I curate as some small dinners and events bringing together different collections of these these pioneers. And I, as we go forward, I think that will expand out in,
1: in scope. Please do keep us in touch um, for the sake of the collective potential. Thank, thank you thank so you. much, Ben, for being here. Yeah, it's yeah. an honor. honor. All right, listeners, thank you so much for listening. If you have any questions about what we discussed, anything that needs to be answered, please go to noblewarrior.com forward slash group. We'll be happy to answer those questions there. Take care now. Bye.